Hi everyone, welcome back to the HR Leaders Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Naveed Nazimian, who's an executive coach and author with over 26 years experience working with leading global brands such as Adidas, GE, Vodafone, Roche, and many, many more. He was also voted 2022's most influential HR leader. During the episode, we discussed Naveed's internationally best-selling book, Mastering Executive Transitions, where he shares the top strategies and tips on how to accelerate and successfully transition new executive roles, and also what can get in the way. As always, before we jump into the video, make sure you hit the subscribe button, turn on the notification bell, and follow on your favorite podcast platform. With that being said, let's jump in. Naveed, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? Thank you very much, Chris. Very much looking forward to this, and I'm super excited to talk about my most passionate topic, executive yeah. transitions. So you finally left the world of HR. You've given, you've, you've, you've retired now. You had enough of being a HR executive. You left us. I, <laughs> I have indeed. Uh, and uh, let me also say that I had the most amazing 20 years uh, working for the function that I truly, truly love. And yet I, I really feel ready to do what I have been doing on the side as mm -hmm. a passion, um, more full time. And yeah. so, yes, that's true. And for those that aren't aware, you've always, you've, whilst being a HR executive for amazing companies like, you know, Adidas, GE, many, many others, um, you've all, you've had the coaching on the side all this in, most of the time, right? What, what made you, what, what was the moment that you said, okay, now's the time to do that full time? Was there like an aha moment or did you, you know, <laughs> How do you decide when to leave? Yes, yes. So so the coaching has been going on for roughly 10 years on the side, always with permission from my employers, I shall say. So I always felt that being transparent about it is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And um, and the, the employers usually share the view that, you know, what I gain as a coach um, from an outside-in perspective is beneficial to the company and vice versa. Because I am a corporate leader, because I am an HR exec myself, I can also bring that to the coaching conversations that I have with um, other clients. Uh, but I think the, the the kind of you know game changer for me was when I started to kind of move up the coaching ladder in terms of seniority of clients. So I've been coaching group CEOs, group CFOs, um, you know, global CHROs, and this is where I really felt that you know I've matured enough as a coach, uh, always on the side that I could really go all in and really dedicate my time more full time to this course uh, rather than doing the HR job as a main gig and kind of doing, you know, less than a handful of uh, sure. coaching clients at any point in time. Yeah. Is it kind of like there's only so far you can do it when you do it when you, only so far you can go when you do it part time? There, there becomes yes. a moment where you kind of got to go all in. And I experienced that with HR leaders. I kind of built it on the side. But Shane and I realized at some point we have to go all in <laughs> in order in order to really grow grow it um as well so super happy for you so congratulations first and foremost thank you very much um when when did the book come into 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 mind you know mastering executive transitions how long was you working on the book how did that come to life yes so so let me give away a little secret here chris when i thought of the book i thought of it to be a year-long project you know what's the big deal i mean i'm writing about a topic that i have a lot of passion for I feel quite knowledgeable about. And so, you know, let me just finish it off in a year's time. And little did I know that it would take me seven years from start to finish. Seven years. To, yeah, wow. to, to give birth to this book. Yeah. But hey, um, it's, it's, it, it, it just, you know, some processes just take their time. 
Sure. And book writing is one of those. I had to learn the hard way. Did you have to go back at certain points? Because like what you wrote on year one surely changed in perspective, perhaps, and insights and research on year seven. Did you have to rewrite a lot along the way, if that makes sense? Well, um, so so let me put it this way. I didn't really write so much. And <laughs> so this is part of the reason it took me seven years. I mean, you get into things like writer's blockade and all sorts of different yeah, issues, yeah. but it wasn't really much of outdated kind of research, but it was really, I mean, you know, in order to write an article, you need an idea or a thought and then you can go. But if you want to produce a book that's comprehensive and you know there is some sort of an alignment of how this becomes a book it's a it's a much bigger undertaking so i clearly underestimated that i mean even after six years i had been writing roughly 60 pages which really isn't much but um the last year was really uh the game-changing year for nice. me and that that year i really gave it all i had and uh, the book became yeah. uh, an, an actual book cool and it's just become an international bestseller so congrats on that as well thank what you very much pretty an amazing achievement to, to do that but for people listening now what is the book about and who is it for yes so the title of the book is mastering executive transitions the definitive guide it says on the tin what the book is all about uh think of my book as the first 90 days for the executive leadership uh it's a very popular book the first 90 days has sold 1.6 yeah. million mm -hmm. copies it's written for anyone and everyone. Um, you know, if you're a first-time manager, you can buy the book and benefit from it. Um, I just find that at the executive level, uh, none of the principles of the first 90 days applies. And therefore, really? my ambition was to write something that really speaks to the executive mind and the executive dynamics um, that take place at that level. Interesting. It's interesting that you say that none of those apply. <laughs> and, yes. And yes. and you think that's because of the 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 way that what 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 it means to be a leader has also dramatically shifted, even more so in the last two years of what we've had behind us. What it means to be a leader and a manager. Yes. I mean, first off, I, I acknowledge any anyone that's been trying to improve the onboarding and transition space. And Michael mm -hmm. Watkins, the, the author of the first 90 days, is one of those. I hold him in high regards. But if, if I were to point out a few things, why my book is very different than that one. The first one is the idea of, you know, any executive leader to transition successfully in a 90 day period is a, is a myth. <laughs> and so it the, takes like six six to twelve months. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the double diamond framework that I introduced in my book for transitioning executives is a twelve to eighteen months journey. Oh, is it? Okay, cool. And okay. so the, the first ninety days is one of the seven phases I actually apply to to my book. So that's just just to put it out there. You see how the the horizon and the time. Uh, frame differs from the the idea of you start on day one and you're done after 90 days mm -hmm. that's just one idea but the second thing is what's written for anyone and everyone cannot really be suitable for the c-suite and so that's the other distinction which is you know if you're a first-time manager i loved reading the first 90 days back in 2008 someone gifted that <laughs> to me and i, thought, I think i got gifted book? that book too <laughs> as yes, well yeah yes, yeah. yes. But boy, if, if I were to, to try any of that with any of my transition coaching time, <laughs> it, it would be a very short engagement. So, yeah. yeah. What would you say is like, the, um, obviously you've done so much research, what would you say is the common mistakes that you say organizations oh, wow. make? Yes, well, I mean, there are mistakes made by the executives, the organization, and uh, the wider stakeholders. So so we can take let's, Yeah, let's go. Let's, start, let's do all three of them. Let's go through. Okay. 
All right. So, so the first thing is uh, that most executive leaders uh, go through the first transition without any professional or qualified support. Um, it's, you know, I use the analogy of when I joined um, Adidas, the sporting goods company, um, you had 14 different clubs to choose from as an employee. And I went for the running club because I was a hobby runner. And the first thing they did with me they, was uh, an exercise, like a test, to, to determine what is my fitness level and what is my running cap capability. And then I was assigned to a group. Oh, great. And the first, and the first uh, interaction I had with the leader of the group, who was a medical doctor, a nutritionist, he said, look, you have been assigned to this group because this is your capability level and so on. Just so you know, if you were up to run the marathon in a year's time, we will get you to that level of competence. You just need to tick this box to say, yes, I would love to run the marathon a year from now. Now, that simple idea of, you know, I could have probably Googled or, you know, done some research and maybe I've gotten to my own running the marathon just by myself. But how much more better and effective and skilled it would be if someone who's helped hundreds of others achieve the same were to work with me to help me achieve the same. So I think one of the first mistakes that I see executives are making is they don't have really any framework, any preparation or anything. They just try to wing it. And which, is why I, oh, which is what I'm doing. <laughs> well, it's what I did in my coaches test at Elton and for the, but for the first four yeah, five, no, yeah, nearly five years of running the business, I was winging it until mm -hmm. Chester became my coach. And immediately I started to see some improvements and some gaps and had someone who's been there and done it with hundreds of the world's top CEO leaders that really helped me get to the next level or even just realize what I'm even doing, to be honest. Because, <laughs> you know, just we st I, when I started the company, I didn't think about what it means to be a founder and CEO, if I'm being honest. Maybe and that was very naive um, to think that, you know, my skill set as a sales director was going to fully transition to being a CEO and a founder. <laughs> it's very different um, as well. Yes, yes. So that's one of the reasons. And then I dedicate an entire chapter to the top 10 reasons for failure. Ah. But because of the, the time that we have together, if I were <laughs> to group those top 10 reasons into three grouped reasons. There are politics, people, and culture. Meaning, it's not that you go ahead and hire the next CHRO, and he or she isn't really good in delivering the strategy through the people agenda. It's, it's exceptionally rare that you go and hire a chief finance officer, and he or she isn't really good in managing the balance sheet. Yeah. Um, so the technical stuff doesn't get in the way, but it's more the soft skills and the soft stuff. And again, that's another a blind spot sometimes for the very competent uh, executive uh, who has been, you know, going through success from success to success, and they just inherently assume that they are going to be successful no matter what the circumstance. And as we know, Chris, 40% of all executive transitions are a failure. Four out of 10 really? executive leaders do not make it. And I've got four, actually five, independent studies that all come to the same conclusion wow it's shocking that's that's uh it's pretty i didn't realize it was that much <laughs> uh as well and and it's interesting how most of those free areas that you mentioned are mainly um soft skills you know as yes. opposed to hard skills yes. or which we now like to refer to as power skills you know, you know mm -hmm. josh Burstyn coined mm -hmm. that recently because you can learn all the technical 
elements, but managing the people and the culture, that's the part that's really the skill, right? That a lot of leaders need to master. Exactly, exactly. And I can speak to the 40% failure rates in a minute, but if I were to come back as to what is it that the organizations could do or are not doing enough of mm -hmm. that could help the executives in transition, um, I think that it's fair to say that between eight and a half to, to nine out of 10 companies get these basic elements right. So when you think of admin arrangements, you know, when I was hired by Vodafone on day one, when I showed up, I had a working laptop, I had access to all the systems I needed, I had a, I had a badge, everyone was expecting me to show up, everyone was waiting for me to come and arrive. And so everything that was, you know, basic arrangements was in place. Um, we had a business orientation, we call it the perfect day one at Vodafone. So once a month, there's a general onboarding orientation day for all the new joiners during that month or the months prior. And so you get inducted into what is Vodafone, what does it stand for, and you know, who are we, and so on. And then the last part is the legal and procedural formalities. So this is your legal compliance training, um, you know, and it was quite detailed for Vodafone because it's a sensitive industry, and so you need to go through more background checks before you actually join, and so on. So that's that's done by most organizations, you know, in a very good way. And by the way, that applies to the entire organization, so everyone will get that. When we look at the executive level leadership, I think a lot of organizations are falling short of catering towards their needs. Uh, there was a famous study that I cited in my book uh, conducted by Igor and Zinda when they interviewed CEOs that were new in, in role. And they said, you know, self-assessment, you know, what was your uh, onboarding and transition like? And 70%, seven out of 10 CEOs said, uh, I didn't have one. Um, or no I had one that was underwhelming or completely underwhelming. So that brings us to what are the so-called higher value activities that the organizations could provide to the uh, executives in transition. So the first one is, and only 50% of companies get that right, it's 52%. Aligning expectations with line managers and teams. This is, you will not believe it, Chris, part of the year-long engagement that I work with uh, transition clients on is conduct 360 interviews on their behalf. So if it's, you know, and I'm working with four CEOs as we speak, I go around and speak to the chairman or the chairwoman of, of, of the board. I speak to their some of their peers and so on. And I ask them very simple questions. Um, and you, you would be amazed how sometimes how widely distributed those expectations are. And oftentimes, even at the board level, not necessarily aligned. So that's one of the, the, the higher value activities the organization can support the executive in transition with. The second one is organizing meaningful meetings with key stakeholders. Now, that by that, I don't mean the PA just books some random appointments and trips into the diary and the executive goes around and has you know, nice coffee chit chats with, with, with a, few, a bunch of people, but it's really, has the organization invested a little bit of time and energy in mapping the stakeholder landscape as per the position, right? And when I say stakeholder landscape, that, is, that includes external stakeholders. It could be governmental organizations, it could be NGOs, it could be investors, shareholders, and the like. So- And do you include do clients that, in that as well? Would you include clients? Yes, yeah. clients, customers, mm -hmm. yes, key accounts, yes, yeah. all of that. Okay. And so in order to do that, you know, you can't leave that to the PA of the exec, but you have to have some support 
typically sure. within HR or in the business support function to allow for the executive. And of course, I will then do that, the full thing with the exec anyway, but that will, will give us a good starting point. And last but not least, facilitating cultural familiarization. Again, um, you know, in my book, I speak about spectacularly failed CEOs who, you know, who, who didn't transition successfully because they are part of the 40% failure rate. And, you know, if I say company names like SAP, um, Uber, uh, Airbus, or uh, sorry, Boeing uh, and HP, these are champions in their own rights. I mean, these are truly global, fantastic organizations. And yet they all have had failed CEO transitions at the very top of the company. And so you what's see the, What's how... the criteria, by the way, really to use for failure? Is it like a certain yes. period that they're there? I think that's important for our audience to understand sure. what does failure look like? Yes. They leave after a few weeks, so, six years, six months? Like, what, what, what is the definition of that? So the main research that I use for the 40% failure rate is uh, publicized by Hydrogen Struggles, one of the largest yep. search mm -hmm. firms in the world. They have made 20,000 um, executive placements over a 10 year time period. And when you go back and look at, uh, at the time frame of 18 months post appointment, 40% of those leaders have been pushed out, failed or quit. 18 months. Wow. 18 months in. And that's, that's kind of the, the drawing line. Sure, so, sure, you know, you, you should assume at that level, someone is there involved for two, three or, or more years to really see through what the strategy is and how that's being executed in the end. So that, that brings us back to the point of cultural familiarization, even though the mandate may be for the new CEO to change the company culture, to disrupt you know, the, the current ways of thinking, to bring in fresh perspective. These are all good things to have. But boy, um, you know, I cite the, the example of the gentleman called uh, Leo Apotheca who was brought in with a, with a big hoopla to HP and who tanked you know, after, after about a year or so. Um, you need to earn the right to come up with, you know, what you want to see change in the culture. You do that too quickly and people will not, you know, um, listen to you because they will think that you're disrespecting the, 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 the legacy, the history, the successes that the company has had. Mm -hmm. And by, by the way, if you were to wait too long, Chris, you will face the, the other end of the You're not doing anything. Oh, you have been fine with whatever we've been doing for two years. Yeah. Why would, Why do we need to suddenly change now, right? And so again, these are just some examples of how organizations can support uh, leaders in transition. And maybe one last item I want to share, and this is a study from Russell Reynolds. They have found that 90% of the cost that goes into hiring someone at the executive leadership is spent on the selection, hiring, and assessment process. And less than 10% is spent on that same exec once they have been hired. It's crazy. So I call about, you know, I call this <laughs> phenomenon the imbalance of investment. Yeah. You know, you, you throw all the money you have at the best exec, and then you kind of hope that they're going to Good work luck. out. <laughs> rather than yeah. supporting them with professional qualified support. And it can be both process-based, as we just learned, what are the higher value activities, and the most obvious one, get them an executive transition coach and make the best case for reducing the derailment risk and increasing the time to productivity. At well, the same time. well, if any company tried to argue that they can't invest the money in getting a coach, 
it, you just have to simply talk, tell them the cost of replacing <laughs> that's that that's what it what is the, the cost of it not working and that person leaving we're gonna spend x many more i can only imagine how much it is to require yes, i can, I can give that number away uh, chris i was so proud what in my first job as an assistant hr manager with adidas that i discovered this study that proved the point that uh, uh, any case of attrition, kind of at the staff man level, is one and a half to two times the cost. Oh, of is that what it is? Okay. Right. There you so, go. And I was super proud, and I made the business case, and I made the project out <laughs> of it, and then we reduced attrition. One well. and a half times. Wow. Well, at the executive level, you won't be surprised to hear that the cost is somewhere between ten to thirty times the executive salary. Oh. Oh. I'd love to know if there's a is there data around the average cost, like the actual number. Has anyone done anything around yeah. that? Like, 10 to 30 times the average salary of the... Oh, industry. 10 to 30. Oh, of course. So you can just work that out, yes. of course. So what it... Yes. Yeah. What, and wow. What is the average salary roughly? Do you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I have in my book, I've publicized the table that's available uh, from uh, Deloitte. Okay. That looks at the CEO salaries in the UK for FTSE companies mm -hmm. because they have a, you know... Um, uh, information right so yeah they have sure to yeah they publish. have to publicize mm -hmm. their topics x and uh, that's just the base salary by the way it's not including shares bonuses or yeah pay. it's eight hundred and fifty thousand pounds per year wow. so 10 to 30 times that amount is roughly eight to 25 million pounds crazy yes <laughs> and and how, how much would you say is the average cost of having a coach for maybe Oh, a fraction <laughs> of that. A fraction of that. Yeah, exactly. Actually, That's what I mean. <laughs> of hiring that exec. Of hiring that exec. Because the cost of hiring is 30% of the total target cash. And if you assume that an, a CEO at that level, let's say, makes, I don't know, five million pounds a year to mm. all in, the TTC will be one and a half million. And so 30% of that will be, you know, a good portion of a half a million pounds. So yeah. it's a fraction of that. It's a yeah. pretty easy case. It's a pretty, <laughs> pretty convincing case. A uh, case to uh, of why companies need to invest. Um, Absolutely. Why, with all the data and all of the insights you just showed, why is companies still not doing this? It kind of seems mm -hmm. crazy, if I'm being honest. Yes. <laughs> yes. To put it bluntly, I mean, some companies are doing it. Bear in mind. I mean, even when we spoke about the so-called higher value activities between two and five out of 10 companies get that right. So okay. there are uh, great examples out there, how companies are supporting. But I think in many ways, um, there are various reasons for why this is not really an established practice. So the first one being, who is in charge of the transition process at the executive level? That's is true. that the CHRO? Is that the CEO? Is that the CFO? Is it a joint uh, you know, effort? Is this something that should be owned by the... Um, uh, chairman of the nominating committee or chairwoman, you know, it's 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 really there's confusion around who's in charge of the process. Then we get into the kind of fast-paced environment that we're in, and you know, changing landscape, changing stakeholders, changing everything. It just needs a little bit of a dedicated resource. And I found that, uh, as an example, tech companies are pretty good at this, right? So if you think of you know the Cisco's. Uh, the Googles, the, the IBMs, 
they are pretty good at making sure that they have something that is considered a standard process, even at the most you know senior leadership team level. And for that, they have you know they are large enough; they can afford to have you know a bunch of people just doing that. Dedicated. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so there are many many reasons, but I think the the bottom line is, and this is why the book is probably doing so well, is there isn't enough done. And um, people don't necessarily have the creativity to think about how they could support their executives in transition. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a business case for it. And the business case is very compelling, also from a commercial yeah. perspective. Earlier, you mentioned, if I remember correctly, the double diamond framework. Mm-hmm. And have you already covered a lot of that or can you kind of break that down for the audience? Yeah, I, I think that the, the Double Diamond Framework is two full chapters of my book. I was, <laughs> okay. I was actually cheating. I was actually cheating. Oh, okay. One of the chapters could be two chapters. Really? <laughs> no, all right, okay. The publisher said, we're not going to break that up again. <laughs> so, but 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 just to, 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 to give the idea again. Sure. Um, and we had a bit of a chit-chat about it. The Double Diamond Framework is 12 to 18 months in, in duration. Mm-hmm. And it consists of seven unique phases that can also overlap. That's why I'm also using the analogy of the diamond because at, at, you know, during different parts of the journey, the executive will need to converge or diverge. Oh, thinking. interesting, and the diamond. Think, okay, cool. Right? Love it. So they need to kind of be, be all consuming in information. This is the first phase, discover, it's called. Or, you know, as, as soon as they get into operate and mobilize, they need to narrow down the focus and really make sure that the execution of the strategy is happening. And then what is unique about the framework is I've got three distinctive elements built into it. The first one is optimizing the energy levels of the leader, which is what I... Um, what do you mean mentally and physically? The, yes. Oh, great. Yes, which is something I miss with a lot of the different frameworks that are out there with, because they all speak to the mind of the exec. And let's face it, executives are pretty good in their head already. And That's so, why they're there um, <laughs> in yeah. the first one. Yeah. Executive transitions can be highly stressful mm. uh, periods of time for any executive, even the most competent and incredibly established one. And so, um, you know, the framework gives, and I'm not creating my own thing in this space, I'm using the work of Tony Schwartz um, uh, that has been publicized in Howard Business Review and other. Um, so, what are some of the tips you share? What are some of the tips you share when yeah. it comes to that part? So, so, so essentially what you do is you, you nourish four different elements of your being that ultimately, you know, pay a dividend on the optimizing the energy level. So that's just one of the three aspects I wanted to mention. The second aspect I want to mention is that the framework suggests that you can accelerate and de-risk your transition by working with a qualified coach. So again, don't think of it as a nice to have. Think of it as an integral part of this. And then the third part that is the, the heart or the core of the double diamond framework is phase seven, and that's called develop. And this is the most obvious one to be dropped by most execs, which is now you have gone through your, let's say, 12 months journey. You have transitioned well into your position. You have finished your first cycle of performance in the organization as well, both as an individual and as a whoever you are. Now let's sit down and reflect on What were the things that you were expecting and that were happening as you were expecting them? What were things that were a surprise to you? And what were things that you actually learned as a result of the mistakes and the surprises you came across? And now let's capture those. And so what the framework is doing with the support of a coach in an ideal way is to make sure that the learning memory 
and the competency level of the executive after the transition is higher than the, when they went into it. And it's captured and documented in that way as well. So that when the next big sure. transition is coming up, the next promotion is coming up, you have embodied the learnings and you have really given it time and reflection to be able to draw upon and go into your next kind of challenge. Because mm -hmm. a lot of time we lose that knowledge transfer, right? Yes. As well, yes. we don't have that in place. I know like we could spend another hour on this, but I'm trying to figure out for our audience purposes, you know, what, if there's one thing that you really want our audience to take away from this, what would that be? Mm. I mean, in a way, what, what, what I would, you know, if I were to summarize everything that's in the book, um, executive leaders are exponentially challenged today more than ever before. And this is not just related to COVID or the post-pandemic, but really, I mean, you look at any angle, organization mm -hmm. complexity, um, you know, the, the dismantlement of the line organization in large corporate, where yep. you have to work through the matrix and what have you. So, so that's, that's, you know, one of the key takeaways to, to bear in mind that executive leaders are exponentially challenged and it gets super lonely at the top. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so the organization better support that leader in the best way they can, because if they don't, the downside of that is a 10 to 30 times cost Literally. price of the, yeah. of the exec. And by the way, just think of the ripple effects, right? Think of low engagement levels. Think of your sales and customer service agents not really being motivated to really go all in um, as they were maybe doing before. And so in a nutshell, we do know what works. In my book, I talk about seven key interventions, scientifically proven interventions that help the executive leader in transition. And therefore, success is not a matter of, I got unlucky and I'm part of the 40% club, or I got lucky and I'm part of the 60% club, but success is something that is planable and repeatable. And so that's how I would maybe recap all the wisdom that I have got on 242 pages in my book. <laughs> People have to the grab the book to learn more. Right? We can't give it all away for everyone on the show. They've got to grab the book otherwise. What would you say was the biggest learning for you personally during this whole research to writing the book? What did you learn the most? What was your key takeaway? Yes. I mean, I had my own surprises along the way. Yeah. And, you know, if I share an anecdote here with you and the audience, I delayed the launch of my book because I got hold of a, a brand new study. Uh, it was done by DDI. It's called the Executive Transition Study. It published that every couple of years. And I got lucky because in 2021, that was published uh, as well. And the big surprise for me was, um, you know, the study asked for the demographics right away, as any good study mm -hmm. should do. Are you male, female? Are you, you know, what is your age bracket? What is your level of leadership? This, that, and the other. And what the study found um, as a surprising kind of effect was that even the companies that have the support baked into, sorry, built into the executive leadership support mechanism have a gender gap when it comes to executive transition support. So this is um, surprising because you can eliminate any gender gap by making sure it's part of the process. But what these companies have not done is to make that common for everyone at that level. Sure. But they leave it up to the negotiation of the executive. And guess what? The male executives are much more forward coming and saying, I want this, I, mean, I want that. And by the way, I want the executive transition coach as well. Whereas some of the female execs at the same level in the same organization 
are a little more careful about coming forward and asking for all this kind of support and so on. So again, that was a surprising um, data point for me to find out that even when there is good intent, if you don't make it sure. baked into the process or it's available to everyone, you will ultimately suffer uh, a gender gap as a result of that. So that was Super one of the kind of surprising findings. Yeah. Listen, before I let you go, where can people reach you? Because I'm super excited to have, and you're already working with a lot of our clients and partners or, and listeners already um, as well. But if people want to reach out to you, where can they connect with you? And also where can they grab a copy of the book? Yes. So I I live and breathe LinkedIn. So Navid Nazimian, <laughs> uh, and there is Me too. <laughs> um, my profile there. And I, 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 I engage with anyone that, that is interested in, in an exchange. So I think that's the best place to go to. Uh, the book is available everywhere you can buy books from. So whether it's Amazon, whether it's Apple Books, anywhere you can buy books from, the book is available. If people are interested to buy the book, the paperback version of the book also gives them something that I consider to be super valuable. This is what I missed with the first 90 days, which is I had to create my own uh, crappy Excel spreadsheet to try to put what is in the book somehow into practice. But if people were to buy the paper version of the book, they also get the, the executive companion guide, which is the workbook of my book. Nice. So if somebody wanted to use the, the, the wisdom that's in the book for themselves or for the executive leader in transition, if they're an HR person, they can actually use the, the, the guidebook to the book as well. So I wanted to have a practical element to it. Amazing. Well. It was like a, like a digital guidebook that you can like, for a link. Yes. Nice. Yes. It's a cool. 31 page document that is absolutely amazing. It's like an editable PDF. Yes. Right, perfect. So at least uh, again, for everyone listening, we're always asking for actionable things that they can take away and use. This is a perfect example of that. So make sure you grab a copy of the book. And for always, for everyone listening, those links are below. So there'll be a link to connect with Naveed LinkedIn, um, the Amazon link, all of the links will be in the description. So whether you're listening or you're watching, make sure you click the links below and grab a copy. But like, honestly, I'm so happy for you. We've spoke for so many years and uh, clearly you found your purpose and your passion and you're, and you're pursuing it. So really happy for you. Congratulations again with the success of the book and look forward to seeing your continued success. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate what you and your team are doing for the HR community. I have been a loyal fan for years and I really, really enjoy listening to the podcast, listening to the various perspectives of HR leaders. Um, whilst I may have left HR as, as an active... <laughs> You've not left, you're still here. <laughs> I, I am very much involved in it and I really you know, want to thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak to the topic that I feel most passionate about. No, I love it. This is exactly why I do the show, right? To share great minds and great insights and so we can all raise the bar together. So I appreciate you and good luck with everything. And I'll see you again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All the best.